Amen. Pray with me. Father, you know how many messages that we hear during the week and how many messages that we hear that just don't accord with truth. As the Lord, as we prepare to open up your word and hear your truth, the truth, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive your word for what it is, not the words of man, but the words of God, the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. Help us receive it for what it is, Lord, and by your spirit, would you massage these truths into our hearts, convicting us of our sin and also encouraging us in the hope of the gospel of our salvation. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be able to minister the Word of God to you this morning. We're going to be picking up, I assume, where Pastor Kyle left off last time he was with us. We'll be in Luke chapter 11 today, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Uh, Now, to set the stage as we prepare to dip into our passage... Um, now, you may recall that uh, the very that the passage just preceding this one in Luke chapter 11 uh, was this well-known story about Martha and Mary. And we heard in that story how Mary, in contrast to Martha, how she was commended for her teachability, for her humility, as she desired to sit at the feet of Jesus as a disciple and learn from Jesus. And that passage was, I think, instructive for the posture that all disciples are called to assume before Jesus, one of humility, one of teachability before the feet of our King. Well, if that passage had something important to tell us about discipleship, so too does the passage that we're looking at this morning. And specifically, it tells us something important about the posture of prayer that all disciples are called to inculcate as well. So with that in mind, let's hear now the word of the Lord. This is Luke 11, 1 through 13. And I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version of the ESV. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if, he has, if, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. In late 1913, about the turn of the last century, um, there was an epic adventure that got underway in the rainforest of Brazil. It was an adventure that would span many months, 
And um, it was led at that time by the former president, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt decided that he was going to set out on this risky expedition down the Amazon River, or down one tributary of the Amazon River, that was known as the River of Doubt. Now, at this point in history, this is 1913, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was already a well-accomplished individual. Uh, he had already led the Rough Riders, um, that uh, battalion or, uh, or unit in uh, the, the Spanish-American War in Cuba. Uh, he had already served as governor of New York. He had already served as vice president, and, and he had already served as a two-time president. He, he was well-known as a politician, as a leader, and also for his grit and for his um, desire, his hunger for outdoor adventures. And so when he ended up losing his third term for the presidency in, in 1912, he set his sights on South America and decided to co-lead this expedition with a guy named, a, a, a Brazilian guy named Colonel Rondon. And it was an expedition that explored this unexplored river in the Amazon. Um, there's a book I recently read about this. It's called The River of Doubt, and it chronicles this entire journey, including the expedition's goals, all of the risks that they undertook, and what life looked like in general, just kind of roughing it in the Amazon. And to be honest, it sounds absolutely miserable. I don't know why anyone wanted to do it. But nevertheless, throughout this entire journey, I found Roosevelt's entire approach just fascinating. You see, for being as an accomplished as, accomplished as he was setting out on this adventure, he never acted at any point like an entitled person when he was with his men in the jungle. For one thing, he assumed the same risks as his men did in the jungle. He was subject to malaria and other diseases, just like his men were in the jungle. He engaged in the same taxing physical labor as the rest of his men. And one of his companions was even stunned when one day he found Roosevelt doing his laundry for him. In short, he was approachable. And he was never willing to call someone to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. And yet at the same time, his men, in approaching Roosevelt as they did, still gave him deference as a former president and as the leader of their expedition. They never presumed upon his approachability. And his Brazilian counterpart even honored Roosevelt, as did the Brazilian government, by naming this unexplored river at the time after him, called the Roosevelt River, and it's still known as that today. You see, Roosevelt on this so-called river of doubt, he was still a former president, was still the, the impressive resume going into it, and he was honored accordingly. But at the same time, he still related with his men as if he were one of them in the jungles of Brazil. He, he knew the other men by name, even the most lowly among them, and he was approachable by the men as he suffered alongside with them. Now, we have to be careful not to press this illustration too far, but when we turn to our passage, Jesus reminds us that as disciples on our sojourn, our pilgrimage in the Christian life, that we serve a God who has to be afforded, on the one hand, the greatest amount of honor and deference, far more than any human being, Roosevelt or anyone else, because this is, after all, the eternal, omnipotent, unchangeable God before whom we come and worship. But this is also the God, friends, the God who knows us by name. For his people, friends, this God is approachable. And more than that, he encourages us to approach him with a kind of persistence that we'll find in this passage, a kind of persistence that might annoy us if someone else were to do the same to us. And as we do that, as we come to this God, Jesus tells us that we can expect big things from a big God who desires communion and fellowship 
with his people. In our passage, which includes the, the shorter version of the Lord's Prayer, the lesser known version of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus encourages us to approach the Lord in fellowship and communion because that is what we have been designed for and redeemed for. And like Mary from the previous passage, that's a unique thing that we share in, a privilege we share in as disciples. But as we do that freely and boldly, it's important because of who God is that we also do that never carelessly, but always on God's terms. And so our big idea as we approach our passage is this, eagerly approach the Lord, but on his terms. Eagerly approach the Lord, but on his terms. Disciples, as Mary showed us in the previous passage, neither ignore the Lord nor hold the Lord at a distance. Disciples, we are called to regularly engage the Lord with persistence. And if we don't, well, that's a problem. But as we engage with the Lord, we have to do so on his terms, with priorities that are most important, not to us, but to him and his kingdom. And throughout our passage, Jesus sketches for us a picture of what it looks like for disciples to approach the Lord in prayer and communion only on the terms that the Lord sketches out for us. Three points as we look at the passage before us. First, disciples pursue the Lord in humility, with persistence, and then with confidence. So let's begin with our first point. First, disciples pursue the Lord in humility. Now, by this point, I understand that Pastor Kyle's been going through uh, the gospel according to Luke. I know you've probably uh, gone through other gospels in the past and read all kinds of different stories about the site, the disciples. And you probably know that throughout the Gospels that the disciples of Jesus are rarely cast in the best of light. Isn't that right? Yes, they're, they're often portrayed as um, oblivious. Sometimes they're portrayed as being pretty consumed with their own self-interests. They're not cast in the best of light. But at least here, when our passage opens, they make a request that I think is fairly admirable. And it reflects a healthy dose of, of humility. It's a humble request. They ask Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. You know, I wonder if we were in their position, if there wouldn't be 10 other topics that we might demand Jesus address before prayer. But by this point in Luke, Jesus' disciples have watched the importance that Jesus has given to prayer. They've watched as Jesus withdraws to desolate places or retreats up a mountaintop or descends or, or gets away from the limelight in order to pray. They've seen the priority that Jesus places on, on prayer. And now it seems that they want to know how they might share in a similar kind of intimacy with God as Jesus does. It's a positive request that I think should prioritize what we value and prioritize in our relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus, we find, he willingly, gladly acquiesces to this request, this humble request to teach us how to pray. And in what follows, he gives instructions that match the kind of humility that ostensibly drive the disciples to their request in the first place. In other words, in each of the petitions that follow, Jesus invites his disciples and us along with them to pursue the Lord with an ever-deepening humility, which is fitting, of course, given the character of the one before whom we come. And so first notice that in verse 2, the first petition that Jesus invites us to echo along with his disciples is one that orbits around God's kingdom purposes. Not our own kingdom purposes, not our own desires for the world. For one thing, disciples are instructed, we're instructed to make the Father's name 
our chief delight. Now to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, is essentially to ask that God's name and everything it stands for, that it be set apart as the, and exalted as the chief object of praise and adoration in the world. It's a request that God's name would relegate my purposes and my image to the periphery underneath his own. Likewise, to pray, your kingdom come, is a prayer that every hill would be lowered and every valley lifted for the sake of God's kingdom purposes, not our own, advancing in the world. It's a prayer that eagerly and humbly submits to God's future over and above our own dreams for the future, whatever they might be. Now, it's pretty clear from these first two petitions that, that the Lord's interests are squarely in view. But what about the rest of the petitions? The rest of the petitions which seem to shift their concern from God to us. Well, even in these petitions that follow, humility we find is threaded through each one of them. In verse 3, we're called as disciples to humbly petition the Lord for our daily bread. Now, I suppose there's maybe some self-interest wrapped up in that prayer. But think about what this is and what this isn't. This request that surfaces, it surfaces out of a humble recognition that it's the Lord who ultimately feeds us. It's a humble request for the basic necessities of life. And it's not a demand that the Lord give us the desires of a heart, regardless of how frivolous they might be or how much they buck up against the Lord's kingdom purposes. You see, through, through each request, including these final two, we find that humility, a deep sense of humility, is baked into each one. So while it's true that Jesus invites us to approach the Lord in the most intimate of ways, after all, this whole prayer is anchored by this invocation, Father. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. We never invoke the Lord as our Father, as if we're spoiled or selfish children. Instead, we're called to come before him with a humble posture that willingly and gladly elevates his kingdom priorities over and above our own. Those priorities that Jesus sets, those have to increase. And my priorities, whatever they might be, those need to decrease. And therefore, one of the questions that I think this leaves us with, at least initially, is whether these priorities, Jesus's kingdom priorities, are in fact priorities that lie at the center of our hearts. Let me tell you a story. Um, when I was in college, many years ago at this point, it seems, um, my university that I went to, we didn't have a football team, uh, but my sister's university did. And so one year uh, during Thanksgiving break, I remember traveling to my sister's university. It was an SEC school. And I went with her and her husband and a few of their friends uh, to one of the big rivalry games of the year. And no, overall, it was a great experience. We were seated in the student section. Uh, people were crazy, uh, but it was a lot of fun. The only problem, however, was that one of my sister's friends who came along with us was actually a supporter of the other SEC team on the field. And now he was sitting in hostile territory in the student section of the team that he was actively rooting against. Now, this wasn't a big deal initially because he wasn't wearing anything that would indicate his allegiances lie anywhere. And for the most part, he blended in as well as I did. But at one point in the game, his team scored a touchdown. And I remember it. He gave the subtlest of fist pumps. 
And someone else in the student section saw it. And this guy recognized immediately that my sister's friend, he wasn't a friendly, he was an enemy, and therefore he had to be taunted relentlessly. And so one thing led to another, and before too long, everyone else in our section knew that this lonely guy wasn't a friendly. He may not have looked any different. There was nothing that would have given away his true allegiances, but it was in that subtle fist pump that emanated from his heart and revealed to everybody else around where his true heart allegiances lay. We'll understand that in the humble prayer Jesus invites us to echo in our hearts and then take upon our lips, we're also called to ask ourselves whether these kingdom priorities that Jesus sets are really priorities that radiate from our hearts? Do these priorities lie at your heart? Or instead, do you often find that there's a mismatch between the priorities of Jesus and his kingdom and your true heart priorities that may not be evident to everyone else out there, but you know yourself? And do you often find that rather than humbly taking Jesus's priorities up as your own, that we inspect rather the Lord to bless our priorities even when they're in conflict with his. Understand that Jesus calls us as we approach him, and boy, oh boy, he wants us to approach him freely, but he also wants us to come in humility, willingly submitting our wills and our dreams and our priorities underneath those of the Lord's kingdom priorities. So again, what about you? Do these priorities radiate from your heart? And are those priorities the ones that are driving you forward in your discipleship. At the end of the day, Jesus' vision of discipleship calls us to treasure and pursue what the Lord treasures, even if it means abandoning our own pursuits in the process. John Calvin puts it like this. He writes, quote, It is the duty of the children of God when they engage in prayer to strip themselves of earthly affections and to rise to meditation on the spiritual life. But as we come to our, the next part of our passage and continue to align ourselves with God's kingdom priorities and repent when we, when we fail to do that, the next posture that Jesus calls us to assume in our discipleship is one of persistence. That is, disciples are also called to pursue the Lord with humility, yes, but also with persistence. Now, the Lord's Prayer it's such a rich prayer. Um, it's a prayer that churches pray often. We prayed it just a moment ago, or at least a longer version from Matthew in, in our liturgy. But the kind of prayer and intimacy that Jesus has in mind, that, that kind of surfaces in the next part of our passage, is that while that kind of humble, those kind of humble petitions are rooted in Lord's Day worship on Sundays, they also go well beyond Lord's Day worship on Sundays, because the intimacy that Jesus invites us into is one that's supposed to mark the entirety of our lives. And this is the next point that Jesus comes to in verses 5 through 8, when he delivers this parable to us, this story to us. It's a very brief story, only encompasses a few verses. But as the story goes, Jesus invites us to imagine something. He invites us to imagine that we have a friend who's traveling through town and randomly stops at your house in the middle of the night to ask for a bed to sleep in and food to eat. Now, if we were faced with that situation, we might not even open the door, pretend we didn't hear anything. But maybe if we were feeling particularly hospitable and our friend comes at midnight and knocks on our door from a distance, maybe we go to the door angry and a bit groggy, point our friend to the couch and then go back to bed. Maybe that's our approach to how we would handle a situation like that. 
But you see, in Jesus's day, that would have been awful hospitality, awful hospitality. You see, if your friend knocked on the door in those days, you better invite him into your home and you better give him something to eat and you better do it with a smile on your face in the process. In fact, to do otherwise would be to incur shame upon your household. You see, in this cultural environment, uh, this is even true with certain cultures today, this idea of shame and honor, or honor and shame, were important tokens in the cultural currency. And if you refused hospitality to someone, well, that incurred shame. And that would have affected your reputation in the community. And so in the case of the parable that Jesus tells, this man answers the door, he welcomes in his traveling friend, but he realizes that he has no food, he has no bread to, to feed his weary traveling friend with. And so with that in mind, he's determined, and he goes across the street to another neighbor, and he begins pounding on his neighbor's door, asking for food that he can feed his friend with. But how does that neighbor respond? Well, at first, that man's neighbor tells him to go away, a terrible display of hospitality, big no-no in these kind of days. He tells him that he's going to wake up the kids if he persists in knocking. You know how difficult it is to get the kids back to bed once they're awake in the middle of the night? Parents can relate with that. I can relate with that. But when this man persists, knocking endlessly on the door, Jesus tells us that this neighbor, he'll eventually get up. And he'll eventually give whatever this man, his neighbor, and his friend needs, quote, because of his impudence, in verse 8, because of his impudence. Now, the word translated in the ESV as impudence is literally the word for shamelessness. And the point is that his neighbor, this neighbor, as annoyed as he is by the persistent pounding at his door, recognizes, just like the man who's doing the pounding, that to refuse hospitality infringes on honor. Both of these men recognize the same. Shame and honor are at stake. And so the one man persistently pounds and the neighbor eventually answers. Okay, so what's the point of this story? Well, it seems as if Jesus is trying to tell us at least two things by it. He's trying to tell us something about us and he's trying to tell us something about God. So first, with respect to us, what's he trying to tell us? Well, he's commending in this passage persistence. You see, this man who plays host to his traveling friend recognizes how high the social stakes are. He has to provide for his friend. He has to be a good host, even if it means inconveniencing his neighbor, and even if it means annoying all of the neighbors who hear him pounding on the door in the middle of the night. But if social stakes like that prompt such persistence, Jesus' point here is how much more should the graver spiritual matters in God's economy propel us to persistence and shamelessness in our own posture towards God? The first point, and perhaps the main point in this illustration, functions as a challenge to our persistence towards God. We know how, persist how to be persistent I think, when we're looking out for our own self-interest. After all, how many different times and in how many different contexts are we told today to be an advocate for yourself? In every kind of sphere, we're told to do that. But if self-interests propel us to persistence, how much more should God's kingdom purposes outlined in the Lord's Prayer propel us to persistence? But if that's the first point that Jesus challenges, on, challenges us on, 
The second deals with how we view the God to whom we draw near. You see, Jesus doesn't cast this man's neighbor in the best of light. His first response when someone's pounding at his door is simply to say, go away, don't bother me. And it's only when this issue of honor is on the line, combined with the man's annoying persistence, that the neighbor finally gives in and provides whatever this persistent man and his friend back home need. But if the response of a reluctant and annoyed neighbor is still to meet the needs of this man, this is Jesus' point, how much more will the God who has purchased us for himself through the blood of Jesus Christ gladly answer us when we're persistent to draw near in our discipleship with humility in prayer. And so Jesus gets to the heart of this posture of persistence in verses 9 through 10, when he calls us, in light of this parable, as the people of God, to ask and seek and knock, with the promise that in doing so, with God's kingdom priorities in mind, that we'll receive, find, and discover an open door. Now, don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. This isn't prosperity gospel. This isn't name it and claim it theology or anything of the sort. Remember, the assumption that this invitation is rooted in is that we're praying and asking for the humble kingdom priorities that Jesus already articulated in the Lord's Prayer. And when we pray according to God's promises, not keeping up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, but, but praying with God's humble kingdom purposes in mind, well, Jesus tells us that we can expect good things from a good father who never ceases to provide us with the things that he promises to bless and satisfy his children with. Understand then that as Jesus moves from one point to the next in these verses, he holds out to us the, the importance of persistence in our discipleship because the stakes are high and the God we draw near to correspondingly is so good, very good. And in doing so, in, in holding out this picture of persistence to us, he also challenges, uh, challenges us, I think, uh, to wake up a little bit in our own discipleship. Let me explain. So earlier in, in our sermon, I mentioned the story of Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt's incredible journey on this uh, river of doubt to illustrate the kind of leader that he was. But uh, as the river of doubt, that narrative unfolds, the story unfolds, we learn that even former presidents uh, get sick. And they can get really sick, in fact. You see, towards the end of, of this expedition, Roosevelt got so sick with an infection that he nearly died on the river of doubt. And in the middle of battling high fever and hallucinations one night, his men were so worried that he might not make it out. They were so worried about his well-being that they took turns staying awake in order to monitor his health and to meet his needs, whatever needs arose in the middle of the night. Um, throughout the night, even when some of them were battling malaria themselves and all of them were starving and tired, a few of the men took turns staying awake vigilantly watching and doing everything in their power not to fall asleep so that they might tend to the needs of the colonel, former President Roosevelt. In short, their persistence on the river of doubt that night was a unique species of persistence because it was an other-centered persistence. You know, I wonder if when we think about persistence in prayer, 
If our assumption is that means we need to pray for our own needs until we annoy God into giving us the things that we want, and yet not only does that not fit what we've said so far, um, especially in the content of the Lord's Prayer back in verses 2 through 4, but notice that the persistence of the man in the parable that Jesus tells as he bugs his neighbor in the middle of the night actually revolves around the needs of someone else. Like Roosevelt's companions, he's not pounding on the door for himself. He's doing it for the sake of his friend who's back home. So as we think about our persistence in prayer then and staying awake in our discipleship, ask yourself the question whether you're awake to needs that lie outside of yourself. Have you taken the needs of your church family to heart more than your own needs? Have you placed those needs upon your lips? And are you persistent in lifting up the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ just as much as you are your own needs? And moreover, do you know the needs of the worldwide church, the suffering church? And are you persistent to take the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ who you might not even know upon your lips in placing them at the feet of Jesus too. Now, at the end of the day, our persistence has nothing to do with somehow cajoling God in order to get our own way, and that's important to reiterate. But rather, as R. Kent Hughes writes, quote, persistence is an indication of our soul's confidence. And when we turn to our final point and the final argument that Jesus leverages in all of this stuff he has to say about prayer and intimacy with God and, and discipleship, we're reminded that, friends, we have every reason to be confident as we approach the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but only because of the character of who he is. So this leads to our third point, third and final point. Third, disciples pursue the Lord with confidence. So when Jesus closes out his instructions here, he ends with a comparison. He gives this comparison, and the comparison is between an earthly father and our heavenly father. But the comparison is pretty self-explanatory. Um, on the one hand, it calls us to imagine a good father. And granted, maybe for some of you, that's a difficult thing to imagine. But for the sake of illustration, Jesus assumes that an ordinary and good father would want to give his children good things. An ordinary and good father isn't going to go out of his way to be cruel or malicious to his children. Though sadly, of course, that, that does happen in our fallen world. But Jesus' point is that if an ordinary and good father won't withhold good things from his children, why in the world would we imagine that our father in heaven, who's not only good, but the very definition of what's good, why would we think that he would withhold from us good things? The answer, of course, is that he won't. He won't. He won't withhold good from his children because it's not in his nature to do evil or to be petty towards us. And therefore, when we persistently approach him with his kingdom purposes at heart, we can rest in confidence that the one we are approaching will lavish upon us even better things than mom or dad could do. But if we still approach these promises with skepticism, is this still true? Will God really meet our needs with even better things? Well, notice the specific promise that surfaces at the end of our passage. Jesus promises that God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it's a request for something that we as believers already have possession of. 
Understand that in redemptive history, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God poured out the spirit of the risen and ascended Christ upon his disciples. And then in our personal stories or histories, when we came to know Christ, if indeed you have come to know Christ, the spirit took what's Christ, what Christ has already accomplished 2,000 years ago in history, and then applied it to you and me, uniting us with Christ in his death and resurrection. Recall how at the beginning of our passage that we were invited to invoke the name of God as Father. Well, understand that that's only possible because the Spirit has already brought us into the family of God. And in doing so, to quote from the Westminster Larger Catechism, he has already made us uh, heirs of all of the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. So when Jesus reminds us here of the goodness of God and then emphasizes the Father's willingness to give us the Holy Spirit to those who ask, we can know with confidence that God will give us the Spirit in our discipleship because he already has in making us disciples in the first place and adopting us into the family of God. So when we need the Spirit to fill us up as disciples in helping us from everything from mortifying our sinful flesh, putting to death our sin nature and the sin that creeps so heavily in our lives, to equipping us in ministry, we can ask the Lord for his spirit and trust that He's that he'll fill us with the one whom he's already given to us. Friends, this is the security and the confidence that we have. And it's a confidence that the Apostle Paul echoes elsewhere in Romans 8, where he reminds us that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will. So as you hear Jesus' parting words then, do you understand the character of the one we approach in worship and as our, in our discipleship? He invites us to draw near and be renewed in our weaknesses and weariness as his children. And at the same time, he gives us everything we could possibly need to do just that. You know, I might really want to give my kids a gift. But if I place that gift out of reach, if I place it on a shelf that they can't reach, and I don't give them the tools to reach it, if I don't give them a stepping stool that might, they might climb up and get that gift, well, they won't be able to access it. But what about our God? Well, our God calls us to ask for big things. He's more than willing to grant big things. And then he gives us, he gives us his Holy Spirit that we might be able to actually access those big things. Again, this doesn't mean that God will grant every wish that we could ever wish for without exception. But when we approach the Lord on his terms and according to his promises, he doesn't withhold the best of what heaven has to offer to those who have been made through the Spirit citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as we have been through Christ. So as you reflect on your own discipleship then, as you take up Jesus' invitation to call upon God as Father, don't just think of God as a bigger version of yourself, or a bigger version of your dad, or whoever else comes to mind, because we approach a God whose character is unassailable and who desires to give us the things, the only things that can satisfy hard, calloused, broken, and weary hearts like ours. So as we prepare to close and turn our attention to, to the Lord's Supper, which is also meant to nourish us in our discipleship, let me leave us with this closing exhortation. Church, turn to Christ in order to truly be fed. 
know, Jesus gives us a lot of direction in this passage about how to approach the Lord in our prayers. And more than that, he encourages us to approach the Lord in our prayers. As disciples, it's ingrained in our spiritual DNA that we would, like Mary, eagerly sit at the feet of Jesus and delight in knowing him. But drawing near to Jesus, as Jesus instructs, isn't a chore. Or at least it shouldn't be a chore, because throughout all of Jesus' instructions, we're reminded that the Lord desires to feed us, to nourish us in our discipleship. And that's what the Lord has done by his spirit, in the word, and by sacrament. So with that said, let me pray as we transition to the sacrament to be fed again through the mouth of faith. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the invitation.